0: Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we're so glad that you found us today. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Britt Andriata. She is the CEO of Seventh Mind Incorporated, and she is an author and a speaker and a consultant and all of the things. So Dr. Andriata, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, JW. Please call me Britt. I'm happy to be with you today and talking to your listeners.
0: Excellent. Well, Britt, um, please, uh, to get started before we dive into some of the topics we have to cover, uh, give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and a little bit of background on 7th Mining, Inc.
1: Okay, great. Great. Well, I was in higher ed for many years. I was a professor and dean at the University of California, Santa Barbara, for many years working on student success, and I created uh, some of the early versions of freshman success and senior success courses and really loved helping young adults make that journey. And then there was a time when I was ready to pivot my career. So I jumped over to lynda.com and was the chief learning officer there, really working on adult learning and helping build uh, skills and capabilities among the workforce. And then part of that included recording courses for the library. So that kind of became how other people got to know me. And that led to more consulting and and speaking in the industry. And, And now I'm you know, I'm, I'm considered a thought leader in the learning industry, particularly because I've brought this whole new understanding of brain science and how we are wired um, to give us new information about how to bring out the best in ourselves and other people. So that led to three books one, Wired to Grow, all about learning, Wired to Resist, all about change, and Wired to Connect, which is all about teams. And then the last part of my journey was after writing those books, um, people started asking if they could get certified in my models and and roll out the training in their orgs. And I hadn't planned on that, but I had already built stuff since I was doing it myself in orgs. And so now I have a full, fully developed trainer certification program. And we're about to release a new product, which is the Brain Aware Manager, a very holistic uh, set of training on um, all the key skills that great managers need to bring out the best in their teams.
0: That is amazing and there's so much I wanna ask. So I'm gonna start pre-pandemic, if you'll indulge me. Um, Exactly, if you can remember a time before the pandemic, um, give me a a sense of what was the evolution in your career and your experience with e-learning over the last maybe 10 years or so. I know online learning's been around a lot longer than people think, right? It's been decades long. Um, Were there a lot of changes in the last uh, 10 years? pre-pandemic? And if so, what were those, you know, kind of uh, what was the evolution of online learning?
1: Oh my gosh, that's a huge question. Well, I mean, you know, as soon as there were computers, online learning started. Um, But what has changed a lot in the evolution of online learning is a couple things. One is who gets access, right? The minute it became online, we stopped the gatekeeping and people didn't have to wait to be tapped for the very specialized learning program that existed in their organization, people could grab their phone and and start learning anywhere. So I love that about it. We kind of democratized learning and allowed people to follow their curiosity. Uh, Certainly there's been an explosion in learning platforms and vendors, and it changes every year. (laughs) It's gotten exponentially huge. And then there's also little niches within that, right? There's gamified learning, there's video-based learning, there's coaching programs, there's synchronous, there's asynchronous, there's instructor-led, there's... you know, self-paced, there's all of it. Um, so lots of journeys. I would say as someone who advises the industry, one of the things I tell kind of learning professionals is, you know, make sure you're making the right choice in terms of what tech you need to, to help learning. Sometimes we can... Lots of bells and whistles at something and it doesn't necessarily make the learning design any better and it doesn't necessarily change the, the learning journey for the actual learner. So, you know, we are learning beings, we're, we're wired to learn, we're biologically driven to learn, and sometimes we can actually mess that up by adding too much complexity to the learning experience. And other times you can use some of these tools and really accelerate and scale learning uh, in incredible ways. So um, that's kind of overview answer. I could probably dig into details there, but it's changed a lot in the last 10 years. Um, I would say during, pand- during the pandemic though, the biggest shift we've seen is that you know, many orgs have been playing with online learning for a while. They've had very large workforces that's been dispersed. They've had people around the world. And then all of a sudden everyone had to deal with that. So some orgs were in better shape because they had already been tinkering with online tools and other learning and development pros were forced to pivot very quickly. And and probably they've been promoting these things within their org, but now the leaders kind of had to get over their resistance. So there's been a breakthrough moment that's been really good. And also it has simultaneously shown all of us that just because you can do something online doesn't mean it's best online. And in fact, there's a real value in in in-person learning when you're in the room with other people, there's whole biology to that. So I think um, as we come back together, we're gonna have much more informed conversations around blended learning and using the right tools in the right way at the right time.
0: I love that and I I think, a lot of people ask the wrong question, which is online learning versus in-person learning. Um, and I for me, it's really about good online learning versus not so good and good onsite learning versus not so good. Tell us about uh, your thoughts on building effective e-learning and effective blended learning, because I believe that's kind of where we're headed next, hopefully, as the pandemic hopefully subsides, um, that we're going to try to take the good that we have been forced to learn, uh, but then also start to incorporate more of the hybrid and the on-site. I know that's another big question, but I know you're an expert, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how can we build that effective e-learning and the blended learning experience moving forward
1: great question. Well, I would encourage folks to get the book Wired to Grow because I go into details around all of it. But, you know, really we need to look at how the brain learns. And the brain learns by having a learning experience, whether we design that or it just happens in the, you know, life or the flow of work. And then, you know, there's the moment of learning and then there's pushing that learning to memory. And first it goes to short-term memory and then hopefully we get it to long-term memory because otherwise we won't be able to use it in the future. And then at least for adult learning, but I would say a lot of academic learning too, we're also trying to drive behavior change, which actually do something different as a result of the learning experience I went through. So I have this three-phase learning model, learn, remember, do. And there's actually different brain structures involved with all three phases. You kind of have to think about, you know. How do we maximize learning? Some things we know is that the human attention span is 15 to 20 minutes and then we kind of naturally fade away and then we come back. So building your learning in 15 to 20 minute chunks of content and then letting people do a processing of activity of some kind, that helps push it into memory. There actually is nine different types of memory that scientists have discovered so far. And the the research in memory is just continuing to explode. So I I don't think we're gonna end on nine, but that's how many we know so far. And they actually uh, are activated in different parts of the brain. So if you're a learning designer, you kind of have to think about what type of memory am I trying to generate? And then what learning elements feed each of those types best? The answer is different for, for a lot of different things. And then ultimately we wanna drive behavior change. And I would say pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, just in general, where learning professionals fall down is that we do a great job of talking about things, but until people actually do it, we haven't yet started the habit. And a habit takes on average 40 to 50 repetitions before it becomes kind of automatic pilot. And so we need to try to figure out how to get those 40 to 50 repetitions into the learning event itself. So we can provide coaching and help people do it correctly. And then you're not really gonna see transfer until people get those repetitions under their belt. So you can invest a lot of money in learning, but unless you get the repetitions built up, they're gonna go back and do it the old way. And cause the old habit is in place and it's gonna be calling to them. Um, so it's definitely how the brain learns, what kind of uh, memory you're pushing. And so then, you know, if you, if you start to think about Where are they at point A? Where do I need to get them to at point B? And now I've got this huge cadre of tools I can use to make that happen. What's the best tool? Sometimes it's an in-person learning experience. Sometimes it's an asynchronous self-paced online module. Sometimes it's a video. Sometimes it's an activity. Sometimes it's a case study. Sometimes it's a VR simulation. All of these tools then you pick and choose to put together the journey for your learners. And uh, the mistake we make is thinking that there's a Mm one-size-fits-all. You have this huge toolkit. Be judicious about how you use it.
0: Yeah, and and you could have the same classroom of students or a group of adult learners, and they're not all going to learn the same either. So even though you're trying to reach the same end goal of uh, teaching that topic, there could be multiple modalities of how you would teach that in some cases.
1: Absolutely. And so getting back to, you know, do I want them to have the experience? And then we pull out the teaching points. Do I want them to understand the theory and the why? And then we apply it. You know, are we going to take a real case study situation and and start to dig into it? There's lots of, you know, places you can interface um, the learning journey and where you're trying to get them to go.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, I forget which of my past guests said it was, uh, you haven't learned something until you've done something. Um, speaking to that point of experiential learning and, and committing it to memory by doing, um, I think that's something that we're going to see more of moving forward. It's not just uh, watching a master class, which is really cool and really great information, but then actually internalizing in that and doing it. Um, so what we're hearing a lot more uh, about instead of learning objectives is performance outcomes. Um, and that you want to be able to do something at the end of this course or this training um, and actually demonstrate that you can do that instead of a, a, a standard multiple choice test, uh, the test is actually performing that task or that new skill. Is that a trend that that you've been seeing as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on the, the learning objectives, right? Like, so sometimes you just want knowledge transfer. People need to understand a piece of information and you can get it to them and verify that they understand it. Um But a lot of times what we really want is behavior change. We're looking for a shift in behavior. And so the only real way to measure that effectiveness is that you're actually measuring the amount that they're doing the behavior before. And then do you see it, go up? Do you see it improve after? And that's the only real way to measure ROI is, and, and that's why I hate NPS. We always talk about NPS scores, you know, having a great learning program that people walked out of and liked. Yeah. That's, that's a good starting point. If they didn't like it, you've got problems, but them walking out and liking it is really the most basic level. And it doesn't doesn't do anything about behavior change so it's really looking at are we seeing the behavior change and is that behavior change driving the metrics we were going after whether it's an increase in productivity or decrease in nutrition or you know whatever needle you were trying to move up or down you got to actually drive to that and that's another thing that i think learning designers need to do is Really, make sure that they're clear about what metric am I trying to move, what behavior drives that metric now, how do I get that behavior to change
0: and so that's a, a great segue into let's say I'm an educator or a l and d professional, and um, people have liked the courses that I've built but but we're not seeing that change affected. What would be the first step to kind of take back and and kind of start over or look at the data and and pivot um, what would be something that, that someone could take away from today's conversation as far as uh, what maybe someone does wrong, uh, you know, often, and how can we correct
1: that? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would do is just kind of start with a blank slate and just, just ask the question, what are the words and actions that we want people doing? So get clear about that. They would be doing ABC, they'd be saying X, Y, Z. You wanna get clear about what are the words and actions we wanna see. Do you have some examples of people who are already doing it well? It's a great time to look at your peak performers or the people where you have pockets of excellence and see what they're doing. And then you look at, well, where, where are my learners now? What behaviors do they currently have and what are they saying and doing? And then I literally look at that as two ends of a bridge and then what are the stepping stones I need across? and i need to make sure that those make sense and are chronological and you know one of the mistake uh, learning professionals make is that they try to shove all those steps into one hour of training well if there's a pretty big gap between here and here there's no way you can do it in one hour so you may be breaking that into three trainings of an hour each right and so this is phase one phase two phase three um so, and then the other part of that is meeting your learners where they're at. We've all sat through bad training where it was a waste of our time because they they missed where we were at or where we needed to go or they just didn't make it engaging for our real lives. So once you kind of identify the stepping stones then it's really about crafting a journey that really meets the needs of your learners. If uh, I I set a goal for myself that I address one of their biggest pain points in the first 30 minutes so that they can walk away with something they can use and then they wanna come back because they knew the learning was valuable. So you also have to really understand the audience and make sure that you're solving a problem that they care about too.
0: I love that. And it seems like a, a new trend that I've seen also is helping to promote the course even when someone's about to take it. Um, with the why, the what's in it for me, and to set that motivation and set that tone before they start just going through the content. Um, I don't know if it's Simon Sinek's influence or or what, but it seems like that has been resonating with learners more. Uh, again, how I would want to consume a course is I would want to know that that's important um, and kind of being upfront with your learners on that. Uh, is that something that you've seen um, all along, or is that a new trend?
1: I think it's been a trend for people who have been great at learning design. Um, you know, we all have kind of had the experience of, of being in a good learning experience over our, over our lifetimes, and we've had the experience of being in bad ones. I think the thing that, because when I was studying the brain science of learning, what I discovered was I was learning the kind of the why behind it, like, oh, here's the brain structure, what's going on. But the actual strategies I'd done, I'd figured out a long time ago, just through trial and error. Right, So that's why sometimes when you're a good learning designer, you're like, oh, this makes sense, but I was already doing it. And I think the best learning designers honestly come from having to do live facilitation. Because there's a whole nother trend of designers that have come out of graphic design and computer skills and I get it, you know, they can design stuff that's really beautiful. But until you're in the front of the room and this great exercise you planned or this aha moment you were driving for, you can see on their faces it is not landing and you have had to pivot in the moment till you get that aha. Um, nope. You don't really understand learning. So for me, learning is always about the aha moment, like I got to get them to the aha moment. And and so that makes a difference when you know how to look for that. And more importantly, when you can see when it's not happening, because as the leader, I gotta keep going until I get it, until it happens. And then you just get better at it. Um, but yeah, I, I think great learner learning designers have always kind of figured out those, those pieces and having people understand the why they're there and what they're gonna get out of it is just a best practice that has existed for a long time. The other thing that I wanna say, is that we all have come through education and education and learning are not necessarily the same thing. And education, there's some great educators who have made learning at the core, but really traditional education is about knowledge transfer. And it's and it's really was designed to kind of prepare people to go become factory workers. I mean, that's the true history of education and it's right. still is on the farming schedule. I mean, that's how out of date we are. Um, Not, you know, I love farmers, God bless them, but you know, most people are not farmers and yet we're still on that schedule. So really understanding learning is when we have a problem we need to solve and we wanna get better at something and we naturally are all learners. We seek information and we try to improve, but good learning designers know how to tap into that and just accelerate that process and make it more positive.
0: I love that. and and. I'm curious to ask a follow-up question on uh, a good on-site instructor making for a good learning designer. Um, We've also seen a little bit of the flip side of that, especially in K-12 education, some great on-site teachers really struggle to convert those skills into the digital uh, delivery. And so I know sometimes that's just uh, not being familiar with the technology, and sometimes it's you have to do things a little differently than you could do in person and feed off of that light bulbs going off and, you know, those kind of interactions and be, especially in the, um, you know, async world, just talking to a camera like we are today, but by yourself. Um, What advice would you have for those uh, educators and L&D professionals that are great on site, uh, but maybe struggled to make the conversion over to online?
1: Great question. You know, there's two parts of it. You know, when, when online learning first became a thing i was super resistant because i'm an i'm an in the room kind of gal and and i was like no this isn't going to work but what really was amazing to me was when you're when you're facilitating live and i'm going to reference now the myers-briggs type indicator right the ei scale um When you're facilitating live, what you're really doing is having a conversation amongst the E's. People who are really comfortable thinking out loud and raising their hand and participating. And you're really missing the voice of the introverts. And introverts are incredibly deep thinkers and dot connectors and really have rich things to bring to the conversation. So the first time I ever taught online, what I noticed was all the eyes were participating because they could come to the keyboard and type in their responses or or record their videos when they were ready. And they drove the learning much farther and deeper because they were adding their insights along with the ease. And I was converted after that. I was like, Oh, there's this real thing going on. But then because I still design for live sometimes, via a screen like we're doing now, I then was like, I wanna make sure I get to that richness in a live event, how do I do that? And so it was really about starting to think about learning modalities that are not based on in the moment reactivity, but more deep reflection. So I started bringing more deep reflective activities into my live design and setting a five minute timer and letting people spend some time thinking and processing what they just learned and applying it and then opening up the conversation and it changed everything. So I think really, you know, and right now I'm talking about stuff that you can do with, you know, great learning can happen without any technology. You just need a person and a a learner and you're good to go, but then you can add bells and whistles that make it better and more fun and more memorable. Um, The other thing I think you can add is visual imagery we know how the brain learns in terms of memory. We all have schemas, kind of like file folders in our brain. And when you can attach learning to something that somebody already knows, it's much stickier. And yet, how can you know everything your audience knows? So working with metaphors, working with visual imagery, we know that the eye and the brain can process visual imagery much more than much quicker than words. Um, so I started playing with all these things and and it started to become a clear package of how you take someone through this journey so if you're if you're good already in person you can definitely take some of those tools and now you're learning just some of the toolkit to make it vibrant online i would say when you're online it has to be faster and snappier and i found that bringing that faster snappierness into the room also really works so they they kind of really inform each other that's why i think everyone should push themselves onto both sides because it's just going to make you a better overall educator
0: I love that. And, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Jesse Cole, uh, likes to say that this about baseball and I equate it to online learning, uh, in that historically it's been too long, too slow and too boring. Um, and if you think of, you know, HR compliance courses from 10 years ago, you're just trying to get the minimum score to pass and then you never think about that content again. And I'm hopeful that we've really had a, a, a sea change here in online learning that has brought engagement, that has brought, um, you know, shorter micro learning lessons that are going to connect more. And so uh, tell us about maybe some of the things we're doing right in general based on the brain science and maybe some things where areas where we're still missing the mark as far as uh, getting to that optimal learning outcome with our our students or with our uh, adult learners.
1: Well, you just really talked about letting learners drive their own journey so that they can go as fast as they want. They can slow it down and repeat it as many times as they need. You know, we we learned this at lynda.com that when we allowed um, playback variability on the videos, that some people would put it on 2X and other people would slow it down to three quarters and watch it multiple times and giving people the ability to just do what they need is really powerful. You know, if you if you gatekeep the pace um, and keep everyone slowed down to the same pace, some of your learners are gonna be really bored and checked out. And if you just let them go faster, they would go faster and they would stay engaged. So I think, you know, this is where the flipped classroom can be really useful. I do a lot of things with pre-learning and post-learning and yet the time in the room is really hands-on practice and answering questions. That's the other thing that I think makes it engaging is when you have people learn something I want them to be able to immediately use it in the room right now with their real team today. How can you use this tool? And when you make it really applicable like that, then they're, they're not really thinking about, it. I'm learning concepts. I'm literally trying to solve my problem with Bob and Marie and Sam on my team, and they want they, then they're just in it you know they're emotionally in it so that applicability and that variability based on individual pace and need i think whenever we can empower our learners to to do what's best for themselves they appreciate it and they'll lean in more
0: i love that and it also has been said that some of the best online learning happens offline that you shouldn't necessarily be online for 8 hours a day or even on site training for 8 hours a day right unless it's mixed up uh, with activities and things and breaks, but um, especially for our educators that are listening, um, feeling like they have to fill all that time and space um, with talking, (laughs) Um, you know, what are some of those best practices around uh, cadence or timeframes or switching between activities and, and being online and offline?
1: Great question. So two things, you know, I mentioned before that 15 to 20 minute segment, the brain just naturally taps out after that period of time. So I naturally just do 15 minute chunks. And then I pair it with a five minute processing activity. Even when I keynote, (laughs) even when I keynote, I do the same thing. I won't talk for more than 15 minutes and then I'll, I'll have the audience process what I just said. So keeping it in chunks, you can string a whole lot of chunks together I still do now that I know that, I won't do more than a half day training. If people want to book me for a full day training, I tell them, look, I'll do a half day. And then the next day I'll do another half day, but I won't do a full day anymore. Unless a good chunk of the time is them off in groups doing hands-on application. Because people, you know, when you hit that afternoon slump, people aren't tired. They're full and there's a difference, you know, they need time. And one of the things that I learned from studying the brain science was just this power of the aha moment. When, I, when we have that aha moment and the synapses connect, aha moments are, in, are unforgettable. That when we have that aha moment, the brain literally changes and it doesn't go back. I kind of like in it to taking, you know, when Neo took the red pill in the matrix and saw the world a new way, he couldn't unsee it. This is what's great about great diversity inclusion training. For example, once you see what privilege is, you can't unsee it. It's there. So I like to think about what's the aha moment. And if I can tell them the answer in five minutes, but they'll have the aha moment in 15, I always pick the 15 minute activity. And what's really cool is that most of our aha moments happen when we stop thinking. It's called the resting neocortex. So I intentionally, the end of any workshop I do is setting them up for aha moments. So I I set them up to connect some dots while they're away from me, because the time away from me is just as as valuable as the time they spent with me. And I actually designed that, that moment to happen. So you want to think about that. How can you have them have some aha moments when they're away from you? And then the first thing you do when you come back together is say, so what's become clear since we last met? And all of a sudden, you'll hear all these insights that people have had. And it's really powerful.
0: That's awesome. Uh, it makes me think of just a will, a really well-crafted movie um, that builds to a certain point. There's some twists and turns, and then there's a, an aha moment, and you can't forget that afterwards. Um,
1: I actually think about that starting point and ending point bridge, that there's a narrative arc here, and I literally think of it as a storytelling journey. And I tell that story with visuals as well as activities. But if you think about it as a story that you're taking them on, it's it's really powerful. Plus the brain is wired for story. It's how we learned from each other was sitting around the fireplace and telling stories. That's how learning was passed down for generations. So story-based learning is particularly sticky for the brain.
0: And it seems even more important now than ever with a lot of kids communicating via text and via uh, not via talking um, to have that story uh, element um, continue, um, and I want to get your thoughts on this uh, a, a lot of trainers out there, a lot of educators, um, just by default, we treat uh, our topics uh, kind of like sweatpants. If you give me thirty minutes to talk about it, I'll fill thirty minutes. If you give me sixty, I'll fill sixty. How do we avoid that um, you know that tendency that we all have to just kind of fill the time we have and be more intentional? and targeted, I think using the story arc is really a great uh, tool. What are some other tools that can help us avoid that, um, that uh, slipping into what's easy?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great challenge. I mean, for me, the aha moment came when I was reading about how the brain learns and realizing that I needed to, to, to stop talking after 15 minutes and give them at least five minutes. Right? So if I'm doing a 45 minute keynote, I'm giving up. I'm giving up in quotes. 15 minutes of that keynote for the audience to do a processing activity, and that was a bitter pill to swallow at first because I, I certainly, I certainly love a stage. I'm a ham too, um, but when I trained myself to do it, and I just saw the results just skyrocket, it became just so clear that what's best for my audience. What's best for the learners is for me to not fill the time and for them to get to fill the time. So I think once you challenge yourself to do it, it will be hard, but you'll see such better roi for the learning thing you created that that you'll be kind of hooked on it by then you wanna you want to see the excitement they have in their learning journey um, so uh, you know it's a challenge, but I think if you just force yourself to do it a couple times you'll you'll get in the habit of it. And then for me, it was also then getting really clear. Like when I consult with people and they want to hire me and say, we want you to solve this, 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 and this, and this, I'm like, great. I can solve all those things, not in a one hour training situation. So it's also getting really clear about if, if these are all the things you want to accomplish, then that's three programs, or that's a journey with an A, B, and C session, and just getting, helping them get clear about what they really want to accomplish. And what's first, what's the most important thing first. I'm also okay with delivering the pilot program and then letting the success of the pilot program drive hunger for more. So when the learners say that was awesome, can we have a part B, or can we have more, can we deliver this to our team? then then you know you're doing a good job as a learning designer and it makes your job easier because they're asking for it as opposed to you trying to push it.
0: And well, and to that point, I like the concept of, uh, for corporate trainings, the exclusivity initially, the beta testers, the FOMO that you can build if you deliver a, a really solid experience for a, a small number. Others then want to join in, whereas if you just made it available to everyone right off the bat, everybody would feel like it's just another thing they have to do. Um, so some of that psychology I think plays into it as well.
1: For sure. I mean, I've just finished, I'm about to release it as a, as a product for people to purchase, but I've been rolling out my brain aware manager training with a few different organizations and inevitably in every single one, you know, the first cohort, there's so much buzz after every single session, there's six sessions. So that's these key critical skills managers need, but brain, brain science is woven through all of it. Cause if they understand the biology of their employees and how the brain works, they can really bring out the best in their people. And what's awesome is there's buzz after every single session. And then inevitably we start getting calls right away from other departments or other leaders saying, hey, how soon can we get this in our, in our program, you know, in our department? So when you create that, that really good learning experience, people talk about it and other people want it right away.
0: All right, so I was reading uh, a a little bit about how uh, your work is sometimes creating uh, a lot of little disruptions across a wide range of topics. Um, Tell us how it's creating these disruptions and uh, tell us why that's a good thing.
1: Thanks for the question. Um, Well, I think my first book on how the brain is wired to learn created some disruptions because it challenged some of the common practices we had in the industry for myself included. Like I completely changed how I design and lead learning as a result of of that journey of my own exploration. and But in a good way, like we we need to design learning of how the brain learns, right? (laughs) So um, that created some disruptions I think for myself and a lot of other folks. And then when I wrote my second book on change, that was a result of going through an acquisition. And I was super excited and positive about the change and I'm certified in all the change models. And I realized none of it was working for me or my colleagues. So I went back to the literature and was like, huh, what, you know, what happens to the brain on change? And sure enough, oftentimes at work, we ask people to go against their biology and then we're frustrated when they're frustrated. And so I've kind of added a whole new look at how do we help people move through change? And part of it is understanding that we are going to resist it. It's just part of our biology. It's part of our survival mechanisms. And then if you understand it, you can help people move through it better. And same with teams, you know, some real groundbreaking stuff around how um, exclusion is really, really damaging to individuals and then therefore teams. And no team can be better than its most damaged member. So you have to care about inclusion, you have to care about having everyone feel like they belong, that they have psychological safety or else the team is hobbled, period, end of sentence. So I think some of these little disruptions are good ones. They're pushing us to make better workplaces. Um, and then in addition, you know, I'm just myself creating products that really have a whole different angle on learning design that you can have really engaging thoughtful training that can be delivered in a variety of ways and using blended methods. And that really drives outcomes that that get the behavior change you really want to see. So it's been fun. I didn't think of myself as a disruptor. I think of myself as a learner and then I share what I'm learning. Um, But it's been really fun to kind of challenge some of the ways we do things because when you make them better, it's, it's night and day, the results you see.
0: Absolutely. And in a year of disruption, embrace your disruptive, uh, you know, passion and, and continue to do that. I know you work with a lot of um, uh, executives around the world uh, on leadership development programs, on learning strategy. Tell us a little bit more about um, some of the training programs that you have and how our audience can learn more.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I wasn't expecting people to say, can we get certified in your models? But when they did, I said, well, actually, yeah, I can build that. So I now um, have certification programs for my different models. So I've got the one on change, it's called Change Quest. I've got one on bringing out the best in teams. And then I'm just releasing now the Brain Aware Manager. And I built it for my tribe because my tribe already knows how to facilitate. They already know what their organization needs. So I really took away some of the gate keeping that happens with getting certified. I've made it online, you know, a really easy, engaging experience. You get the tools in your hands right away and can start customizing them to your organization. And I just built, honestly, as someone who's bought a lot of learning solutions, (laughs) I've always been frustrated with something and I built what I always wanted to buy. So it literally has all the things learning and development professionals have always wanted, but we usually are not given because typically vendors are, don't come from a learning background. They don't necessarily know what we need. So it's been fun uh, building that. And, and then just the results have been phenomenal. Just seeing people get certified, seeing them roll it out in their orgs and, and having great results. And we're in the process of translating a lot of my products into multiple languages. Those will be available later in this year. And I just love my tribe. I think learning professionals are the most wonderful people in the world because they just care so much about other folks and about making the world better. So I just love engaging with educators of all levels and folks who are, who are doing this difficult work of trying to uplevel the skills and the compassion and the empathy and the emotional intelligence of an entire workforce. It's pretty powerful stuff that we do.
0: Absolutely. And I love that it's such a diverse community. Uh, almost anyone can be a learning professional. Um, not all learning professionals went to school to be a learning professional. A lot of them were good at what they did and other People ask them to teach others how to do it or they had a passion for a topic and they became, you know, an educator on that topic. So I think it's really inspiring um, to have this conversation and I know my audience is really going to. Uh, dive into your work even further if they haven't already uh, because it's just really empowering Um, and I know educators love to also empower their students or their uh, adult learners that they're working with so thank you so much uh, for joining us today I have a bunch more questions but I'm going to save those for next time Um, so hopefully we can have you on again uh, later this year as I know things will continue to evolve and change Uh, but thank you for joining us today
1: Thank you so much. I would love for folks to follow me on LinkedIn. So look for me there. And if you're interested in more of my work, it's my name, BritAndreada.com. Thanks so much for having the opportunity to talk to you today, JW, and to connect with your listeners everywhere.
0: Awesome. And all of the links will be in the blog right up next to this episode. So check those out, click on them and be sure to check out past episodes of Voices of eLearning as well. Thank you for joining us today and always, always keep learning.